This is one of the things that the 43 Group is known by and should be known in the future, that you do not wait to be attacked. You take the fight of the enemy and attack those before they attack you. We did find ourselves in a very tricky situation, sometimes outnumbered. Anything you do to deter people from nasty things they want to do was uh, a good thing. Radio 43, the anti-fascism podcast from Hope Not Hate. This is episode number 43. Um, and oh. for a number, of, Yeah, I know. Isn't that a lovely turn of events? Yeah. And for a number of reasons, um, this is our first episode of 2023. Bloody slackers. Uh, yeah. how's, it, how's it going, Joe? I've got my esteemed colleague, the scourge of the far right, Joe Mohol, uh, oh. across, uh, across the internet for me. How are you doing, mate? I'm good, mate. I feel like it's been my fault slightly that we haven't, haven't done it this year. It's been a bit of a busy start to the year, and every time you've asked, I keep pushing it back so i'm sorry for that that's my fault no you made me sound desperate but uh it's good to, <laughs> it's good well, to it's good to sit down yeah it's good to sit down with you anyway uh what you've been up to you've been like you say i mean it's been full on this year already um, yeah it's been busy been, i mean well we start every year with with state of hate our, our kind of annual report and this year it was kind of bigger than ever so it, mm. it's, a, it's a big old piece of work that kind of takes a big chunk of the back end of last year and then into this year as well so that's come out and that's been great we've been really happy with that um if you haven't read it i mean i know you have but if, if uh, other people haven't read it do check it out it's on the website <laughs> he's shaking his head um <laughs> i've read parts no, of it yeah it's and massive it's like, i mean it's gigantic it's like 150 pages right it's like... yeah it's, it's it's got a collection of kind of investigations that we do throughout the year and, and save for state of hate so kind of like undercover stuff and revelations uh, about certain groups or individuals in there and then there's big lot of the policy team do a lot of stuff around with some fascinating polling in there about andrew tate and about kind of societal attitudes um which comes in and they're really really useful and interesting we base a lot of our campaign work off that sort of data and then there is just the kind of the meat of it if you will at the back which is um basically profiles of all the key figures individuals organizations in the far right uh across the uk so um that's the bit that takes all the work, just digging in to find out what all these horrible people are up to. Has there anyone been jumping up and down this year who's been included, who think they shouldn't have been? Or, Well, actually, the, yeah, the, the fun ones are the groups that um, or individuals that think they should have been in there, but we deem them not important enough to let them in. <laughs> um, I mean, we try to make it as expansive as possible, but if we did every blog and every podcast and every you know thing that we monitor, it would it would be double the size again. So we have to kind of draw a line somewhere, and we have quite strict criteria about who gets in and who doesn't. Uh, but the ones who didn't what's get the, in, not, sorry, what, what's the what's the criteria? If you're an absolute nobody, you don't get in, basically. Yeah, if you're not, I mean, there's it's it's based on levels of importance, based on reach and impact and scale and size yeah. and viewership and all those sorts of questions. Um, organized versus unorganized. So like, how how far do we go? I mean, because you could just put thousands of individuals in there. Um, that are not involved in organisations, but some are, etc. So um, we have these big kind of discussions throughout the year about who should and shouldn't. But the ones that didn't make it, and I'm not going to mention here because that's what they want. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a guy who's been in our Twitter mentions saying that he's uh, he's been moved into one group and he should have been into another group. Also, I don't know. He's been jumping, yeah, we- try, try, trying to get us to talk about him, and he's just so irrelevant that I'm just you know. Well, you get um, a mixed reaction. Some people 
kind of are genuinely worried when they when they find themselves in there because they realize that they're they're on our radar so they get very nervous about it um but then that's their fault because they only get in there if they're doing something really awful um so you get some people that get really nervous and upset that they're in there and then you get other people that are really upset that they didn't make it so um we always try to tread that line to see to make sure that the person's actually it's useful to include them because the information we're providing is going to be useful for people in, in various different ways for sure but yeah, it's a big piece of work. It's available now on our website. You can go and uh, download it for free. Remarkable. Mm. Um, don't get that sort of value anywhere else. So if you are new to the podcast, then um, this is the show where we kind of go over what the far right have been up to. We look at some things that are coming down the line and maybe provide a bit of intelligence on on uh, on things that are going on. And on the show this week, we're going to be looking at um, a news story that w- that we broke last week, uh, one that we published on Monday of this week, and also we're going to be scrolling back to a story um, in that state of hate report that Joe just mentioned uh, just then, because I think it's a really significant story and I, and I don't think it's had anywhere near enough traction um, as it should have done. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. I think it's done all right, actually. No, it has. Done, got, I think it's got lots of traction. It's had some mainstream, had some, it's had some mainstream <laughs> no, pull up, but I think it needs to have a bit more because I think it yeah. is astonishing. Mm. Um, no, no, it's shocking. It's shocking. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking, to talking with you about that because I, you wrote it, I believe. So um, mm. yeah, I'm looking forward to talk, talking to you about that. But since we've been away for so long, I thought it would make, would make sense to spend a few minutes at the start of this podcast just kind of drawing a few things together, what's been going on this year, because I don't know about you, Joe, but I've been thinking that this year has been, it's been so unusual in the sense of probably that more than at any other point in my time doing this, there has been more far-right demonstrations going off all all across the country uh you know every weekend it seems like there's an anti-migrant demo going off somewhere uh there was a shocking stat in this year's state of hate report which um which you mentioned which said that last year anti-migrant activists visited accommodation housing migrants and asylum seekers uh 253 times which was a 102 percent increase on 2021 and i think the background on this is of course uh, the conservative party's becoming you know, increasingly uh, hard line speaking in the language of the far right, you know, using language of invasion, that kind of thing. And that is having a knock on effect on the street in terms of it's emboldening the far right. What's your takeaway from these first few months? Because it has been pretty appalling. Yeah, I mean, it's been a really worrying time. There's um, so the far right isn't necessarily at the moment much larger than it was when we last met, for example, and, and last talked, um, but it's extraordinarily active. So the, the organizations that are engaging in this sort of behavior aren't necessarily growing rapidly it's not that we're seeing a huge swelling although we'll have to watch in the coming months because this sort of activism can lead to to growth in in these groups but they are extremely active and i think there's a few things at play here i mean you'll you'll remember the the kind of events that happened at kirby outside the migrant accommodation where a police van was burnt and that set off a, a kind of chain reaction of events where we now got sometimes five sometimes ten kind of anti-migrant demonstrations a week and and that statistic you mentioned earlier a lot of those were individual so-called migrant hunters turning up at accommodation filming it might be one person it might be three people um there's been a bit of a tactical shift to kind of formal demonstrations both at accommodation but also in town centers up and down the country some of these have been led by groups like patriotic alternative some of them are, are a whole host of different uh, organizations and individuals across the far right are attempting to organize demonstrations and we're getting 
uh, three or four, as I say, sometimes up to 10 in a single weekend, uh, ranging in size. Some are still very small. Some might be 10 people. Some have been up to maybe 400, 500 people. So there's a huge amount of energy and activism around this issue at the moment in the far right. Now, the question is whether or not this is a kind of fundamental tactic shift in in the far right, which is going to be kind of long-standing in terms of them moving towards this notion of demonstrations and attempt to occupy the streets, or whether or not this is a moment of energy post-Kirby that's going to dissipate in the coming months. It's going to be one to watch. But at the moment, there seems to be kind of continuing energy here, that there seems to be still lots of demonstrations happening. You mentioned the mainstream thing. I think there's um, kind of a cyclical thing happening here. Uh, part of it is is that the far right go into communities. They whip up tensions around asylum seekers and migrants and cross-channel migration and accommodation. They leaflet. They knock on doors. They have small demonstrations. And it kind of uh, poisons the attitudes in the local community. And then once you have kind of local buy-in and local attitudes, you then start to get this sense that people don't like immigrants. People are angry about this issue. At which point the mainstream media and, and mainstream uh, politicians jump on the issue because and they say, well, people are angry. We need to do something. But simultaneously, Simultaneously, it operates the other way where you have mainstream politicians like Suella Braverman and, and newspapers like the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, the Sun, jumping up and down in this issue, uh, engaging in irresponsible and inflammatory language around migration and asylum seekers. And then that creates anger in society and then the far right look at that anger and they seek to exploit it the other way and then they go into those communities and mm -hmm. attempt to have demonstrations and recruit. So these things are happening simultaneously and it's, uh, it's a really, really worrying time as you say because there is so much happening at the moment and it's partly why we haven't had this podcast is because uh groups like ourselves are just spending a huge amount of time working out what's happening at these demonstrations some of them are organized by the far right um, and they are attended purely by the far right other ones are organized by the far right but attended by local people where there's buy-in and on the flip side there are demonstrations being organized by local communities that, that might be whipped up by far-right rhetoric or might have far-right views, but aren't necessarily part of the organised far-right in, in a traditional sense. And they're having their own demonstrations and they're being attended by local people and they're very hard to gauge the size, scale and anger of those. And then there are some people which are just really annoyed and angry about... <laughs> You know, those local communities have no resources, there's no schools, there's no hospitals, there's no jobs, there's no houses, and they don't feel that they're able to take large numbers of new people. Or there's, you know, new ones recently about uh, an RAF base where people are angry because it's a historical site that hasn't been looked after, etc. So there's a whole range of things happening simultaneously, but it's just resulting in a vast amount of activism that we're trying to keep a handle on. Uh, I mean, we could go on to a big discussion about the reasons, you know, you know about... You know the reasons why we, we might think asylum seekers and refugees are being put up in accommodation in you know economically more deprived areas with a you know an election coming up and all the rest of it probably let's park that maybe have a discussion about that on another podcast because i just think we're, we're going to be a bit short of time but i think there is an interesting discussion to be had there but i think you mentioned patriotic alternative the uk's kind of largest fascist organization i suppose I think it'd be useful since it's been a few months for us just to have a little, a, a quick whiz through some of the groups and just see what's been going on. Because they, as you say, they've been very, very active. Um, mm -hmm. Some of their people have been, you know, organising these anti-migrant demos. They, you know, some of the leadership have been giving speeches at some, you know, at ones up in Scotland and and elsewhere. So how, you, you say it's not really, this isn't really turning into a kind of, uh hasn't really been very fruitful in terms of recruitment for them so far well it's one to watch right i mean these things take time so how many people turn up at a demonstration that's organized by patriotic alternative 
and then contact the martyr for information and become an activist. Um, seeing those people kind of leak through when they'll eventually kind of pop up on our radar um, can take a bit of time. So I'm not saying they haven't, but we haven't seen a dramatic rise in scale yet, but PA are very, very much jumping on this issue. Um, there's been a few shifts in PA recently, probably since we last spoke. I mean, one is this shift towards much more overt protesting, street protests. You know, they've had some in Skegness, and as you say, there's, there's, they've had some, they've got one in Wales coming up, they've had some in Scotland, where they're having proper protests in town centres with banners and with stands and with microphones. And that's obviously a tactic that they've shifted towards more overtly in the last few months. Um, they're also engaging in what they see as much more community organising. So going down to a grassroots level, joining local Facebook groups, spending time engaging with the local community, often not telling them who they are. I mean, a number of the protests we've monitored ostensibly look like they're locally derived, kind of locally concerned citizens, and often behind the scenes organising the protest is members of PA. Now, in some cases, it seems that the organisers that are local people don't know much about PA. And, and in other cases, Patriotic Alternative are organising events without any branding on at all. So they're organising the event, but they don't put PA on the leaflet. They don't put it on the banner. They don't put it on the on the flyer. Mm. Uh, and then they attempt to get local people there. And then they stand there with all their Patriotic Alternative banners out. At There's that been stage some there. pushback, though, hasn't there, as well? There's been some demos that they've tried to muscle in on and local people have given have pushed them out and uh, and that kind of thing is that is that correct yeah i mean i mean there's also been some cases where you know members of pa like collett and, and a few others have given pretty extreme speeches at these demonstrations and some of the audience have felt uncomfortable with quite how extreme patriotic alternative are when they when they actually give mm. their speeches but it's a, it's a great example of a traditional thing the far right have always done they go into communities and they try to exploit them for their own ends right they go in to, to where they find local anger and they go in and they try and recruit and they go in and they try and shape that anger and direct that anger towards their own political goals. And that's nothing new that the far right are doing it. We shouldn't be surprised, but they're very, very active at the moment in terms of these these protests. And it will be interesting to see how long this kind of tactical shift lasts, whether or not they're going to continue to do protests as regularly as they are at the moment, or whether or not it becomes a kind of tactic of diminishing returns. We'll have to watch and see. What about Britain first? They are out on the election trail, aren't they? Yeah, they are. So Britain First, uh, again, very small in size, but very, very active. Interestingly, they put out a press release saying, I mean, it was after the Kirby events, um, where they put out a press release to journalists. I mean, we didn't get one, but we obviously got a copy where um, uh, they were saying, we're going to be up and down the country protesting outside accommodation. And I think they felt like the, the rest of the far right had got a bit of a jump on them because all of the press was going talking about PA rather than Britain first. And I think they were a bit jealous of that. So they said they were going to be doing lots, but they haven't actually turned up a huge amount of uh, asylum seeker accommodation more recently. They are still focusing on the local elections, which are coming up in May. And they're putting a lot of their resources into basically the northwest around Salford um, and then in South London in Dartford and, and that sort of area. So they've got a few seats there, but they've got a few small seats that are around the country that they're focusing on. Um, I mean, so far they've done that tactic at numerous elections in the last few years with with almost no success. Was I mean, well, in fact less than no success, like an embarrassing lack of success. Um, but um, they seem to be continuing to stick with that tactic. Now the issue is, of course, that even if they don't win, and it looks still unlike very unlikely that they would win at these forthcoming elections that much far-right material going into small concentrated areas over a prolonged period is obviously bad news, right? And um, 
they will polarize those communities that they're targeting. They will find people in those communities that are angry about stuff and they'll exploit that anger. And so even if they don't, we shouldn't just measure their success and their importance and impact in those spaces by what those electoral results are, because they're likely to be embarrassing again. But it doesn't mean that they're not having a really nasty, pernicious effect on the places they're targeting. Mm, yeah, definitely. They put out a leaflet in Salford about us. Um, yeah. I don't know if you saw that. But it I was, did, uh, yeah. I mean, good. I mean, look, if they're going to be spending time targeting us rather than targeting exactly. minority communities and the people they normally target, I'd rather they targeted us. Yeah. I don't think there's a huge amount of voter cut through by coming after Hope Not Hate, but look, if they want to make leaflets about us, I'd prefer it. Yeah. I mean, it was a, a risible pack of lies, but uh, yeah. still entertaining to see. Um, the last one I think maybe we'll touch on, unless there's anyone else you really want to speak about, is uh, Tommy Robinson, who's, you know, he's been kicked off Twitter and he's been making some idiotic podcasts with people, mm. but he's been in Ireland as well. Is that correct? Yeah. So the decline and further decline of Tommy Robinson yeah. continues. I mean, um, it's, it, I mean, it's it, almost interesting how little cut through he's had around this, this issue around migration and asylum seekers and accommodation. He has dipped his toe in the water at numerous times in the last few years. He's turned up at some accommodation himself before at, a ver at various hotels, but you know, one would have expected him to really, dive into this issue and attempt to try and make political capital out of it but he's instead been focusing much more on Ireland where there's also some some protests have been happening around similar sorts of issues to do with asylum seekers and accommodation and he's been focusing his energy over there he went over to to Dublin recently and spent some time over there and got a pretty rough welcome <laughs> from um from a, which you'd expect in Ireland you know um yeah. Uh, a pretty rough welcome and there was some really really impressive kind of counter demonstrations and some very impressive solidarity shown from a whole like a vast range of groups i mean if you look at the poster for the counter demos um i mean you're talking vast amount of, of different it's organizations huge. from across the the political spectrum so he got the welcome he deserved and he's he's kind of made a, a documentary that that has got less than almost no traction at all so He's looking around for an issue that he can own, and, and as yet he still failed to find it, and that's that can only be positive, you know. And I'm, I'm, I would expect him to turn around and shift to try and try and occupy a bit more of this space when it comes to asylum seekers and migrants, because um, he's going to be looking for the same successes that other groups and individuals are having. But so far, he's he's kind of in the wind a little bit, which is great news, you know. I, I, let's move on because I think we've, we've got a lot a lot left to cover on this show, and I want to talk about the uh, the new issues group, which was the centerpiece investigation really from this year's state of hate report. And I, I'd heard a rumbling about it. Um, but when I actually got around to reading it, it really took my breath away because I think it's extraordinary. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, I don't think it's really had as much pickup. It's had a bit of pickup and obviously, you know, you're on sky news and all the rest of it, but I think this should, you know, potentially there's a, there's a, uh, you know, there's analysis, which would say, well, it, because it's focusing on, on Islam and you know it's a country of you know deep rooted Islamophobia in, in Britain that maybe it hasn't had as much pickup as it as it should have done. Um, but we're talking about this group called the New Issues Group, which is a a top secret anti-Islam group that has been operating at the heart of the British establishment for for over a decade without anyone knowing. Mm. Um, my first question for you, Joe, and if you can't answer this, then fine. It's a top secret group operating for over a decade how did you find out about it i don't mean that yeah. as in how did you no, no. In, but how did you find out about it well first i should say i was quite happy with how the the uh new issue story performed but now I've, i feel a bit like it might have underperformed but no um well, I, just no, think it's, I just think it's so it's <laughs> I'm, so I'm, astonishing I'm 
I'm joking. I'm joking. No, it did, is. Well. It's, it's remarkable. So basically, yeah, this is uh, this is a, a secretive uh, anti-Muslim organisation that's been operating at the heart of Westminster for for over a decade now that no one knew about. That, to be frank, neither did we know about until till a while ago, and it almost sounds fanciful. It almost sounds <laughs> like Walter Mitty stuff. Like this, this can't be true, um, but it is, and we and we proved it. I mean, basically speaking. Uh, it involved three kind of areas. One was members of the House of Lords, so people like Lord Pearson of Rannoch, uh, Caroline Cox or Baroness Cox. It also involved kind of well-known, long-standing anti-Muslim, Islamophobic, far-right figures like Amory Waters, Tony Bugle, various figures that were part of what would have been called the counter-jihad movement previously and then christian evangelical groups so so individuals right. from groups like christian concern and together collectively they would meet on the parliamentary estate for over a decade <laughs> and have meetings and they would engage in various forms of activism some was to try and push through legislation through the house uh, through the house of lords some of it was to literally the, we we had examples where far-right individuals wrote questions that were then uh, to be asked in the House of Lords by by lords and, and baronesses, which Jesus. is staggering. Um, and then uh, part of it was basically to, to kind of have groups that were set up with a view to, to engaging in politics on, the, on a more of a street level. So things like uh, Sharia Watch UK, which was launched in the House of Lords by Baroness Cox, which was set up by Anne-Marie Waters. And a core group, unbelievable, and a core group of individuals that were involved with the NIG group for... For, for many, many years, were also the individuals that went on to set up Hearts of Oak. And Hearts right. of Oak was the group, of course, that Tommy Robinson was involved in, that is still around and still has websites and uh, still makes podcasts with big anti-Muslim players from all over the world. So it's a pretty staggering story. And then the final bomb on top of it all is, um, you know, the funding came from an, an American evangelical group called the Fieldstead and Company that funds various right-wing Republicans and evangelical courses in America, and it was just a staggering idea that basically you had American money coming into Britain to fund a sequel. Well, I say to fund a charity or to fund a, a company, as it was actually uh, an organisation that we believe was essentially a company that was um, uh, being used as a as a way that this kind of behind the scenes group operated. And that that company's job was to try and push legislation through the House of Parliament. So it's a pretty staggering story. That's remarkable. So there's a through line from the House of Lords to Tommy Robinson, essentially, through by Hearts of Oak. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, so first of all, as I say, there was literally far right figures. And we knew that, I mean, for example, Lord Pearson had a dinner with Tommy Robinson in the House of Lords, three-course meal with wine. And um, and there was various meetings discussed, etc. There was there was literally people like Anne-Marie Waters that we've talked about on here loads on this podcast who was was attending meetings of the NIG for, for, for a prolonged period. And basically, um, the way we found out about it, just to get back to your first question, <laughs> was um, Lord Pearson made a mistake, right? So Lord Pearson sent out an email to 240 people and instead of BCCing everyone in, he CC'd oh. everyone in. That's <laughs> oh, a classic and, of the um, genre. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so there's 240 names on it. And there was the names on it were wild. We're talking kind of politicians, conservative party politicians, bishops, um, all sorts of people, you know, as well as wow. far-right figures from the UK and internationally. And now there was absolutely no, I mean, we're certainly not alleging, with them, you know, this was just an email list and, and there's no sign indication that the people on the list ever signed up for it. It could have been that he just found their email addresses somewhere. But it was through that kind of email list that someone then contacted us and said, what is this? There's clearly an email list there. And and then we managed to to find out more information. 
managed to get a source, and then we managed to uh, get our hands on thousands and thousands of documents uh, related to this organization going back a decade, everything from the minutes of meetings to memos. And I mean, you name it, we got it. And so um, the full stories is on our website and you can, uh, in in the uh, state of hate, the downloadable version has the long version of the story that tells you kind of everything that we found. And it's pretty jaw-dropping stuff and depressing, you know, because it's a good reminder that things like anti-Muslim prejudice and, and, and far-right politics isn't just something that happens in our communities and on our streets. It's it's also happening in our houses of parliament. Definitely, it's a it's an incredible story. And um, you know, I'm sure you were like a kid at Christmas when you got hold of the. Oh, okay. I mean, it took a long time to get, but it was once we got the documents. Um, it was pretty jaw dropping just to look through them. Not least that they talked about hope not hate quite regularly, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but Did it they- was it was. Sorry, I, I cut you up there. Did, did he? Um, so did did Lord Pearson? Did he sign off the email as m- making a reference to the New Issues Group? Or was no, there... no, no, not at all. It was just it was an it was a it was an email about Muslims basically that he'd written or about Islam. Um, and it was that someone was on the email list couldn't saw that because they saw that everyone else was on the email list and said what's going on here and it was it was via that that we kind of found out about it and then we started to dig and then we managed to find various people that had been involved over the years um kind of two or three people that had been going to meetings here and there that managed to then get hold of of documents um but you know as far as we know i don't know i mean the the people we spoke to left some years ago and so we don't we don't know exactly the ins and outs of what's still happening. But the final yeah. thing I would say is, is that an investigation has been launched um, in the House of Lords into Baroness Cox because on her register of members' interests, there was no mention of this company called Equal and Free Limited, of which she was a director, which is the uh, which was the company that was receiving money from North America. Um, there is no mention of that. And so there has been an investigation launched about whether or not she should have um, put that down on her members register. I was going to ask you about that, but um, <clears throat> so thank you for addressing that. But the other question I had was about the funding, which was, you know, it, I guess if you're a funder of a group of, of an organization, you want to see a public return on investment, right? You want to be able to just point to something and go, I can, you know, I made that happen. Do you have any analysis of what, you know, with a, with a group that this 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 sort of shadowy, what's your analysis of like, what this these funders have been getting out of it bar uh, apart from these groups on the street and if the formation of these front groups etc is is it just that or has there been other stuff that's been going on well the really difficult thing to answer here and uh, this isn't a story that is over this is something we're obviously still looking into is it's very very unclear to know what the funders thought they were funding yeah so you know we know that um this american funder fieldstead and company was giving money to a company in the uk and that company was set up with a purpose of pushing legislation through the House, specifically a, a private member's bill that Baroness Cox created. We have no idea or, or no evidence about whether or not that funder even knew about the NIG or any of the other funders that we mentioned in the report. Uh, and when we contacted them all for comments, some came back and said they'd never heard of the NIG. So it's very unclear to know whether or not they knew what they were funding and whether or not that money was percolating through into things like the NIG itself. So Mm. what the big question that comes out of this is just the vast lack of transparency around the Lords. It's, you know, there's a story about the Lords, members of the Lords collaborating with the far right, which is shocking. There's there's the bit about far right figures writing questions 
for lords to ask in the House of Lords, which is unacceptable morally and shocking. There's the bit about you know Baroness Cox breaking the rules in terms of not listing this this company on her members' register interest. But there's also this question just about the lack of transparency. You know, this was a year digging into this story, and the lack of or the ability to find information about who funds what. Who does what is just absolutely staggering when it comes to the House of Lords, you know. And I hope there's people that have more time than us that specifically look at things like Lords reform to have a look mm. at it because it's shocking how little uh, it was. It's possible to find. But what I would say absolutely clearly, not just for the lawyers, is we don't know what this American funder believed they were funding and whether or not they'd even heard of the NIG. They never got back to us when we asked for comment. Right. Um, but we can just prove that money came towards this company that Baroness Cox was a director of. Amazing, remarkable story. How do you, uh, just final thing on this quickly, Ashley, um, when you got the lead on this story, you obviously you have to be a bit, um, what's the word? Is credulous the right word? Circumspect. Yeah, I, I guess you, you get a lead on a story like this and you must think, okay, this sounds conspiratorial. The, you know, how the, the process by which you stand up a story like this must be pretty rigorous, I'd have thought. Yeah, I mean, it took over a year. Um, so when you first hear about a secret group operating out of the House of Lords, you know, for over a decade that no one's ever heard of, and there's absolutely no mention of it anywhere on the internet, you think, how true can this be? But, um, you know, Mm -hmm. the documents were a massive step. And then once you've got the documents, it's about then proving that the documents are accurate and then finding other sources and then finding enough sources that you can stand it up and then finding uh, kind of corroborating evidence. Uh, and that took, took took a year to try and uh, to build it all together to the point where we felt comfortable that, that we could publish and, and that it was accurate. And, and then we obviously uh, gave the story to the Sky News, which did their own digging and did their own standing up, and they published a version of the story. And then the Observer as well. Similarly, we spoke to the Observer, and, and they then again have to, to kind of stand this stuff up before they can publish. So it went through an awful lot of lawyers, let, let me say that. <laughs> but, um, but And it took a long time. But by the end of it, you know, I mean, there's loads of other stuff I'd have loved to have said in there, but we can only put stuff in there we can absolutely prove, you know. Um, but I don't think this story is finished. I think there's a lot more to be looked into when it comes to the... I mean, we've had a number of people contact us since the story went out with some pretty jaw-dropping stuff, but again, we don't know how long it'll take to stand that up. I think there's a part two, there's a sequel in yeah, the hopefully. works. Maybe next year, maybe the next State of Hate report. Yeah, exactly, maybe, yeah, yeah. Okay, so next story is about a guy who was formerly in PA... But he's had a falling out with the leadership, I believe. Joe, you're going to go into some details on that in a second. Uh, he's been nicknamed the Hull Hitler uh, after a speech he gave in uh, at a demonstration in Hull. He was sporting a moustache and a, a sort of beige trench coat. Um, and his name is Alec Yerbury. And one of our researchers has been doing uh, a lot of uh, a lot of investigative work on him and has found some extremely unsavoury uh, stuff. Um, we're going to get into that in a second. But Joe, could you just give us a couple of uh, a couple of lines on? Alec Yerbury, like why why is he being kicked out? Because he was being held up by the leadership of PA as you know a, a real major player in the movement, and now he's been excommunicated. So it's a bit of an odd one. Yeah, so he, he is a bit of a strange one. I mean, this guy's uh, Alec Yerbury. People might have seen pictures on our website with his, with his rather interesting moustache. Uh, he's a privately educated guy from Adelaide, Australia, but um, he, he was in the British Army for a bit, and he got involved in PA. I think in the autumn of twenty twenty one. And he, he quickly rose up the ranks, became quite a prominent public-facing activist from their Yorkshire branch. Um, he would be regularly 
public speaking for them. Uh, the leadership talked about him as kind of this terrific example of what a modern ethno-nationalist should be. That's a quote, if I remember rightly. Um, and basically, his role was kind of organising and fronting these anti-migrant demonstrations. And he, and he and then obviously got into the press, um, not least because, he, uh, you know, he, res- he has a slight resemblance of Hitler, <laughs> hence the whole Hitler uh, oh, yeah, uh, the, yeah. the, the, the newspaper thing. But he, he started talking about wanting to set up a new EDL, which um, which is peculiar in the sense that you know he was in a the EDL wasn't necessarily an ethno nationalist organisation, but he liked that kind of street element to it. He wanted it to be to be like an anti Muslim street movement, and um, I think Patriotic Alternative have been spending many many years now trying to present themselves as not yobbish, not violent, not hooligans all of which uh, were issues that the EDL faced. And as a result, there was these kind of tactical differences. And, and with time, he then has gone off and kind of formed his own thing and and is still doing his own stuff. He's still calling his own demonstrations. But the guy is extraordinarily extreme mm-hmm. and, and and quite a dangerous figure. I mean, I think it's, it's all good and well to laugh at fascists, and I have no problem with that. Um, and, you know, he's a good one to laugh at when you look at the way he dresses and his tash and his kind of resemblance to Hitler and stuff. But actually, behind that, he's, he's a very, very extreme and a pretty dangerous character, I think. Do you want to talk us through uh, exactly how extreme he is? Because the... The, the piece of work that our colleague uh, David put together has yeah. a whole load of uh, comments that he's made online. It basically reveals that he's has, he has this sort of sick fascination with violence against his enemies, basically. Um, yeah. You could just pull out some quotes if you like. Is there yeah, a- yeah, sure. So I'd say, I mean, all, all of the quotes are in my, my colleague David Lawrence wrote this really, really uh, interesting article which, which goes into a lot of this stuff but i mean as you say uh, his big target for, for a long time now has been politicians and broadly speaking anyone who's left wing you know he's always talking about political parasites he's, and and one of the really dangerous elements is he talks about this tre- treacherous you know westminster criminals and he's talked about uh, you know one uh, one quote of his was remember a few years ago when the mp got our head blown off in public clearly the other mps have learned nothing from that and are still just as ignorant and selfish as ever you know, mm-hmm. he he references kind of Thomas Mayer. Uh, he's talked about kind of his violent hatred of people, and at one point, most shockingly, perhaps he said, "Where's Thomas Mayer when you need him?" And obviously, Thomas Mayer was the man uh, that murdered Joe Cox, the MP. So um, he's got this history of, of kind of really explicit violent talk when it comes to to members of Parliament. And then, of course, also, which comes as no surprise, really horrific speech when it comes to migrants. Uh, he's talked about Black Lives Matter and the left more broadly. And and some of the quotes there, you know, the worst one uh, that comes off the top of my head is, you know, when he talked about needing to start using firearms on them, mm-hmm. nothing else is ever going to stop it. Um, so there's kind of discussions about violence, discussions about which which kind of are very close to, to terrorism. And, and we've obviously published the article, and I'd be very surprised if, if some of the stuff that we've highlighted in the piece doesn't end up with him uh, getting in trouble with the law, as I, as I think it breaks a, a number of pieces of legislation. Yeah, there's one where he says, uh, my whole life experience has convinced me that left-wing people, communists, Marxists, liberals, are the definition of evil. And as like a cancer, as long as a single one exists, the human race will never be safe. And he says, uh, you know, when it comes to the hard left, you understand now why Franco and a certain Austrian, meaning Hitler, did what they did to those sort of people. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it sounds a lot like our like our phone messages in the office, but um, <laughs> but um, you know, but yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I'm kind of laughing, but it's not funny, obviously. <laughs> but um, uh, as I say, if you look at David's article, there is, I mean, this is just a handful of of the the number of quotes that are in the piece, let alone the ones that aren't in the piece. 
And um, uh, and I guess the point here is is that why did this a man like this finds a home in patriotic alternative for a number of years? Um, and it's because I, I think part of the issue is he's saying the bits out loud that that large chunks of patriotic alternatives supporters and membership and and team believe in private and he's just been saying them more publicly and, and and has put them on spaces online that we've been able to get hold of them it's an interesting thing isn't it because P, pa have obviously kept a lid on this guy to an extent in terms of his extremity um so it's just a, a yeah i don't know this... well it's interesting i mean the problem is, is that you know if you look at mark collett who leads patriotic alternative you know if you look what he said about mein camp it's not like necessarily that he's been hiding his views no, when it comes course, to yeah, Third Reich. But I think the difference here is, is that, you know, and we know, and we've, we've talked about it on here before, and we've published a lot on this about the number of links and individuals that are involved in Patriotic Alternative that at various times were involved with the now banned national action, the neo Nazi terror group. So it's no surprise that an individual like this is in PA. But um, I guess it's the fact that he would find a home there for so long. And it's, and it's that kind of violent element that the leadership get very skitty and nervous about you know mm. pa's leadership despite the fact that, that the views they hold are in most cases indistinguishable from someone like yerbury um it's the fact that he talks more overtly about violence that makes them nervous because of course they know that they've got individuals in their ranks not least their kind of second in command or third in command sam melia who was involved with national action on uh, for a period so they're very nervous about being linked to terrorism because they're worried about being shut down or being arrested and someone like Yerbury is obviously not good for that when he's when he's put, putting this stuff in places that people like us are going to find it. Definitely. Just, th- uh, just 30 seconds on this, if you would. But um, for newer listeners to the podcast and people who are just sort of getting into anti-fascism, how central is violence to, to fascism and, and the far right? And how far do you have to scratch beneath the surface with these groups to find somebody like Alec Yerbury saying these types of things? Is it uh, Are they a dime a dozen or is it... Yeah, I mean, they are. I mean, so, you know, sadly, if you look at our research team, for example, my colleague Patrick Hermanson will look at violent content uh, all day, every day. And, and most of our team will end up looking at content every single day from individuals like this that are in, uh, engaging in both either violence or talking about violence in the most extreme ways. You know, the far right is replete, and it is packed with individuals that believe these things. And there's a number of things to say here. One is, uh, Motivated by, in some cases, hatred of people, you know, whether or not it's minority communities, uh, Jewish people, Muslims, etc., or, or people of different sexualities or genders, um, there is, a, in some cases, a deep-seated hatred that they believe these people should be eradicated, mm-hmm. and that obviously leads to violence. On the other side of it, some people here are motivated by a kind of a dramatic fear. They believe that we are being invaded. They believe that they have bought into these conspiratorial notions of a, a great replacement, that there is a conscious plan to to get rid of white people from Britain. And for some people there, they see it as an act of defence when they engage in this sort of violent rhetoric and speech. And then kind of the more ideological ones, fascism, of course, has violence baked into it. it is a mechan- Violence and war is a mechanism for societal change. Uh, and for those groups and individuals that are more ideological that essentially believe that democracy is is either not going to be useful to them or, or in many cases believe that it's actually a system that they fundamentally reject they believe in in much more what they would see as natural hierarchies um they they see that um if there's not going to change society through the ballot box then violence is required to change society through something like a race war and mm. so this sort of rhetoric is is everywhere now some people depending on how we're talking about the the kind of extreme far right here the more neo-nazi scene but um 
there's just different levels uh, depending on both how extreme people are, but also how willing people are to be open and discuss this stuff. You know, with changes in terrorism legislation in, in recent years, with a step change in the way that the police and the CPS are dealing with these issues, uh, more people are being arrested, more people are going to prison. And so the ones that are really still out there talking about this stuff openly uh, really are the wildest and the most extreme ones. Interesting. Some uh, some thoughtful reflections there, Joe. Thank you. Uh, last last no story. Problem. No problem. <laughs> um, I think let's move to the last story, which um, is about a, a UKIP counsellor in Tendring, which is uh, a piece of work that one of our uh, another colleague of ours, Gregory, has been doing some work on. Um, UKIP currently have seven counsellors, but I think that's pretty soon going to be six because I can't see how this guy survives in fact somebody messaged me some UKIP branch messaged me yesterday saying that he's actually he's been kicked out of the party already had no confirmation on that as of yet but we'll have to see but um I think let, let's break this story down because it, it, it's grim yeah but there's also something kind of grimly absurd about it as well and and in, in a kind of amusing way um this is a yeah. guy called Peter Cawthron I keep calling him Cawthorn but it's Cawthron Cawthron yeah and um uh I think let's let's start with them. So let's start with the grim stuff first, because he's been so he's a UKIP counselor in Tendring. He lives in Wales. He's been commuting to the other side of the country to go to attend council meetings, etc. Um, but he has been living similarly to Alec Yerby, I suppose. He's been living a different life online, hasn't he? He's been kind of been much more extreme and open, saying the quite a bit out loud, I suppose. Well, he's as I say, it's one of those cases where I mean, if it wasn't so sad and horrible and awful and dangerous it would be pretty hilarious i mean this is a guy who's literally written i'm literally the least productive counselor in the uk <laughs> out of more than twenty thousand. um and and gregory uh davis our colleague has written this piece up it's, it's again it's now on our website and it's, it's been picked up by kind of local media as well um do have a read through it because some of it as you say is very very extreme kind of reference to the n-word um also i mean all sorts of racism that i wouldn't want to repeat on here but you know the anti-semitism in there as well he calls uh, himself a Nazi. he says i am a nazi you know that yeah of, i mean yeah. he's talked explicitly about being a racist a racialist a nazi um he's talked about iq so we're talking about a very very extreme kind of nazi here but also what's fascinating about this story is how stupid this man is yeah to then write all this stuff online now of course he's come out and claimed in his responses that he didn't know anything about this and someone must have hacked his account but the evidence we've got is so massively overwhelming the bbc have even published on this which means they're you know uh getting it through their lawyers as well the stupidity of a man to write this much stuff online to talk about basically robbing money to talk about but you know the, the racism stuff is is awful but he brags about like the amount of money he's managed to get out of councils you know he's bragged about being unproductive he's talked about sneaking stuff through on his expenses how he sneaks food through and and they'll pay for a few drinks as well the idea that that he would put this online <laughs> i just don't i it's really hard to understand the stupidity of it but you know i mean ukip has racist is in some ways not a new story um, we've been writing that story for a decade, <laughs> but um, but you know, of course, UKIP is in irrelevance now. It's broadly speaking, in the political sense compared to where it was at its heights, you know, pre the Brexit uh, referendum and when Nigel Farage was involved, it really is a tiny rump of irrelevance right now. 
but it still obviously attracts these individuals, as you say, it's, and it's still got a name recognition. People know what UKIP is because it was a big party, mm. you know, with millions of votes at, at one point. So people still know what it is. And some people just still tick the box because they have this recollection of UKIP. But it's full of these, or it's, you know, it's got individuals like this in the party, which are just extraordinarily extreme. And in this case, extraordinarily stupid. And also, it, there's something as well, isn't there, about the party has proven itself time and again, that when it actually, it, you know, gets involved in the mechanics of local government, it has absolutely zero idea about what it's doing. I mean, they took control of a council over in Kent, and the thing fell apart, like, straight away. Yeah, and the far right have always done this, you know, like far right, there was a, you know, at the height of the British National Party, there was a few BNP councillors that were actually quite diligent in the way they, I mean, I'm not defending them in terms of their no. politics, of course, but, you know, they, they actually did turn up, they actually did, and, and those were always the ones that we found the hardest to deal with, because people would turn, like some people in the local community say, well, they did deal with the streetlights, they did deal with the dog poo, and they did deal with the potholes, or whatever those issues are, you know, Um and and they were quite diligent in that sense. But broadly speaking, the retrack record of, and this isn't just in the last decade, you know, this is throughout the whole post-war period, when the far right have had councillors or any sort of power in council chambers, um, the byword for them has been kind of incompetence or absence. You know, they either, mm. they didn't turn up, and if they did turn up, they were rubbish. Um, and I guess this is just part of that tradition. But this guy is, uh, he's kind of, he was also boasting, if I recall, about, Basically, just throwing this, throwing sand in the gears of of everything, like just just trying to make stuff not work properly. Yeah, um, yeah, you know. Yeah. And part of that is because they want to, you know, if people fall out and and don't believe that that the you know the mechanisms of power in their communities or even nationally are going to work and make change, then people look for alternatives. People that you know the far right feed off that anger. You know, because big narrative of, of the populist narrative is always very much there is an out of touch elite that's in power that that is, uh, and then there is this pure people that are being ignored or subjugated, and and part of that is saying, well, look, there's no one out there that listens to you, and there's no one that makes change for your life. We're a different to them now. In this case, of course, ironically, we're different to them. Is that he's he's different to them in that he's worse, but um, <laughs> yeah, I would uh, check out Gregory's article on the website if you want to both be appalled, but. Also have a little laugh as well. Yeah, I think some, some of it is just so absurd. Um, yeah. I should say as well that um, UKIP uh, have not responded to any messages that we've sent them. In fact, they've blocked they've blocked us on Twitter. They've blocked yeah. Gregory on Twitter. Uh, their deputy leader is or their chairman or something is just refusing to like engage really yeah. and set and say anything. Uh, Neil Hamilton said nothing. So um, we'll keep pressing. Maybe yeah. they'll say something at some point. Anyway, uh, this has been a ridiculously long episode of this podcast. Uh, Can I just in- flag one last thing before no, we finish? No, I want you to. I was going to say, do you want to talk about <laughs> Wakefield quickly? Just very, very briefly. Um, so this is a complex story that's been rumbling on for a couple of weeks, but I think it's quite important. Um, basically, there was uh, some local anger around an issue where it's, uh, you know, there was reports that a, a, a school kid... Um, either desecrated a Quran or uh, dropped a Quran on the floor. There was various discussions around it, and it sounded like the school was dealing with it. The, the local Muslim community spoke with the family, and uh, un- but unsurprisingly, the far right have obviously jumped on this issue. And uh, at the weekend, a, a kind of a very well-known Danish or Danish slash Swedish um, far right figure called Rasmus Paladin, who's well known in in Scandinavia for being the man that burns Qurans and he has done for for many many years now he does these small protests often pretty much on his own but sometimes with a small handful of people burns Qurans and, and with a view to kind of causing outrage he announced at the weekend that he was going to come to Wakefield to burn a Quran 
people like Tommy Robinson uh, uh, pushed out his video on social media on, on Telegram and the like saying that this guy was coming over. Um, uh, the He has actually, thankfully, been banned from entering the, in the country. Uh, this was one of those things, whatever you think about uh for you know freedom of religion or freedom of speech or all those sorts of big debates this was about whether or not this would be conducive to the public good to allow a far-right figure to come over and burn a quran and we don't have time to get into all those debates but um you can imagine the the sort of problems that would have caused in the local community and and nationally in fact but he has now been banned from entering and um if people are interested in uh in this figure uh, i'd suggest going to expo in Sweden, uh, our colleagues in Sweden called Expo that have written a huge amount about this guy. So if you're interested in, in, in who he is and what he's been up to for a long time, because he's quite an important figure on the international scene, um, do go to Expo uh, in Sweden and have a look. Definitely. There's a demo, isn't there? There's uh, some, NA there is still, some there's, old there's... NA figures are knocking around. Yeah, there is a kind of rabble of people that are going to wait for this weekend around this issue still um, coming up this Saturday. So um, there's kind of rumours of, of some pretty extreme figures coming Um from around the country and from the local area to go and wait for to protest around this issue, uh, which is one that we're watching very closely. Some pretty extreme figures heading to to Wakefield, I think, this weekend. So, absolutely right. Yeah. I'm sure that's um, that must be the longest episode ever, right? I think it's absurd. Yeah, I'm gonna have to put a disclaimer. I think at the front top, yeah, yeah. top end of this podcast, but um, it's great to see you, mate. And I think we should try. We, we need to try and do these more regularly. We will um, start doing them again. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I'm not gonna try and seem desperate, but I am gonna like. Pest no, no, we, I weeks. will. I'm sorry if it's taken so long, but yeah, let's do it. No. Do them more often. Good to see you, man. Chat soon. Cheers, you too, mate. Bye. Bye. You cannot prevent 50 people, 50 postmen or 50 dustmen, from having anti-Semitic thoughts. But you can prevent 50 dustmen forming an anti-Semitic dustmen association. Take the fight of the enemy and attack those before they attack you.